Uh, any any prayer requests today? It's good to see you all again. Yes. But she's going to be high on my list, Kay. I've already got her on my mind. And because you're not going to ask, I'm going to say a prayer anyway for you and David. Um, just don't anybody interrupt Mary because she's a scholar tonight and you can... She is deeply in, into her book. You got special glasses for it. Yeah. That's a small Bible. Holy cow. You know, you can buy a bigger Bible and help your eyes. It's up and I've had it for 40 years. Any, any prayer requests? Let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life today and the gift of yourself through the day. Um, for all the many ways in which you ask things of us and offer your goodness. Um, um, we ask a special prayer. Um, you already know it. She's been in our minds and hearts for a long, long time, and more especially the last few weeks. Um, receive Denise into your kingdom. Um, we've asked. Um, we believe that our prayers make a difference, that you hear us. Um, so we're enjoying the combined effect of our prayers as a group. Receive that young woman um, into your kingdom and in some ways receive David and Kay and she carries them with them. So David and Kay have even more reason to be glad to let go of her, to give her to you, to send her home. She's gone home. And I ask for a blessing on David and Kay um, for the for the long ordeal, um, get them back here to class, David and Kay. Get them back here, because um, we miss them. Um, you know our hearts, um, the burdens that we carry. Um, help us to give them to you, trusting in our lives. So. Um, I ask a special blessing on all that we're doing here as a group. Um, it's been a long journey of learning. Um, um, hopefully a real strengthening of our minds and hearts and our faith. Give us the courage to take what we're learning to our world, to our families. Um, help us to risk dangers, trusting in you. Not to presume, um, but to be willing to risk. Um, to take you to our families, um, to our communities, to our world. Make your kingdom present here, particularly where people don't know it. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Wait, sorry. Amy? Um, watch over our daughter, please, in her travels. She's going to the other side of the continent today. Keep her safe. See her safely there. Um, her work is taking her to India. Um, I'm upset with her, actually. She didn't take me with her. Never seen India. 
be with her in her travels, keep her safe, and keep her safe while she's there, and see her safely home. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Say, Anne. We would have made you dance for us if you were to end the Okay. Um, I want to stay with the Emily Dickinson poetry that I gave you last week. Um, in one way, it's a little bit fitting, truly fitting. Um, we're not at Advent yet, we're, but we're approaching Advent, and the church will ask us to fast. Um, and I think for most of us, fasting means giving something up not receiving something. I want to underscore that, okay? When we, when we fast, God, when we fast, I think most of us think we're giving something up. And we're hungry to get back. Whatever it is we gave up, we eager to get back to it. Food or drink or sex or things or quiet our spiritual problem, our pride whatever it is. One of the beauties about these poems that I've selected, this is just a handful of Emily Dickens' poems because her collected works is much larger. But one of the reasons for collecting these poems is because every one of them has to do with um, renunciations and the fact that in giving up, something's given. There's something there, um, but we don't quite see it because we're feeling the deprivations, whatever it is we're renouncing, giving up. So I just want to read a couple of, and sorry, so hold on. We're approaching Advent. Christ is going to ask us repeatedly, um, unless you bear a cross, um, unless you die, unless you fall to the ground like a seed, give yourself up, you will not be renewed. You won't, there won't be a rebirth. Um, a, a life being given back. So um, Christ entered our world and he created all sorts of problems for us. Um, one of the things that he did was make it clear that we, we have to give something back, we have to renounce ourselves, we even have to give up our, life, our lives themselves. Okay? So he's entered our psyche. Um, Paul says um, he can't deny anybody, but anybody who denies him, Christ will deny. Turning away from him will separate us. Um, so, it, it's... He's left us with a serious problem. <clears throat> we have to learn to see ourselves better than we do and make greater efforts of giving ourselves up. All of these poems by Dickinson have to do with something given in the act of renunciation. So I'll go back and reread two of the short poems that I read um, last week and then pick up a couple this week. So on page one, <coughs> remember poem 11, um, Success is Counted Sweetest. Success is counted sweetest by those who ne'er succeed to comprehend the nectar 
requires source need. Not one of all the purple hosts who took the flag today can tell the definition so clear of victory. As he defeated dying on whose forbidden ear, the distant strains of triumph burst agonized and clear. It's the guy who lost who's going to feel victory, the, the greatest meaning, because the people who are victorious are going to celebrate, obviously take it for granted. And by the way, one of the major things we're going to touch on at the very beginning of Matthew is all the Beatitudes. Every one of the Beatitudes speak to people who are marginalized, who can't enjoy success. Blessed are the poor, blessed are the who mourn, all of those. He's talking to the people who have not established themselves. They're not successful. They don't have money. They don't have homes. He's saying to all of them, you are blessed. You're next to the kingdom. You shouldn't be sorry. So Dickinson is speaking out of that sentiment when she writes these poems, okay? Go to the, go to the back page, 133. Water is taught, taught by thirst. Isn't that true? We have water all the time and don't think about it. Let us go thirsty for a couple of days. Be on a desert. Christ went 40 days on a desert. Give up food and then see how you value food or water. Water is taught by thirst. Land by the ocean's past. Transport by throw. Peace by its battles told. Love by memorial mold, birds by the snow. Yeah? We know the meaning of those things by their opposite. Is that clear? Okay? Okay, let's go back. Three thirty one, first page. A light existence spring not present in the air at any other period when March is scarcely here a color stands abroad on solitary hills that science cannot overtake but human nature feels. It waits upon the lawn, it shows the furthest tree upon the furthest slope we know it almost speaks to me. Then as horizons step or noons report away Without the formula of sound, it passes and we stay. A quality of loss affecting our content as trade had suddenly encroached upon a sacrament. There's something there. Yeah, we feel it. We can't always give it a name. Can't identify it. But it's like a sacrament present. And we feel it most when it's gone. Which means it was always there. It's only when we lose things that we can finally fully appreciate them. And by the way, just to sort of flesh this out, those of you who've started this from the beginning, remember, remember that in the Odyssey, the one thing that Odysseus had to do in order to get home was a condition. He could have had all the adventures or not, but the one thing he had to do in order to get home was go to the land of the dead. Eliot has those words. The past is tongued with fire. If we don't deal with the dead, we don't know how to live. So very often in America, because we make success everything, we, we mourn and feel bad when we lose things. 
Christianity has taught us to be glad because there's something there and when we lose them we become more aware of it. We don't take it for granted. It's like we can finally fully... There, that wonderful poem of Shakespeare's, you know, I've read, I'll, I'll probably pick it up again next week. Um, that time of year thou mayest in me behold. He's, he's saying to the beloved, love that more deeply, which you're going to soon lose. Do we feel love for our beloved, our spouses, or our families? You know, we could not be here the next day. Um, think about what we'd miss, even with all the fights or problems or whatever it is. Um, they're all to make us better. Here, I'll read one more and then we'll stop um, with these. 523 on the back of the first page. <clears throat> as imperceptibly as grief, the summer lapsed away, too imperceptible at last to seem like perfidy. A quietness distilled as twilight long begun, or nature spending with herself sequestered afternoon. The dust drew early in, the morning foreign shone, a courteous yet harrowing grace as guest who would be gone. And thus without a wing or service of a keel, our summer made her light escape into the beautiful. I'm gonna, this is, um, I've got just a couple of, um, thoughts before we um, turn to Matthew. Um, <laughs> Suzanne, you know, we talked about it before, Suzanne loves plants and, and she's got flowers and, and uh, spices in the backyard. One of the, the plants just outside the kitchen window is a hibiscus. Um, and um, I'm not a lover of plants, I mean I just but I love that plant because through the year, I can't even pick the seasons, she will know um, better than I do um, in a way that I don't. Um, through the seasons, it's not uncommon for there to be one flower on that plant daily. It'll come and go and come and go. And occasionally there's two and I feel like it's special because there's two of us there. But I watch those flowers come and go and the beauty of them. And part of the beauty is that they're perishable. If they don't come the next day, I miss them. But there's this beautiful hibiscus plant. And it's a common experience. I mean, when we get up in the morning, we look to see if there's a bloom there. For those of you, I know, I know Anne, you've talked about. Um, and my awareness of it the other day left me reflecting on poetry. You guys have heard this all too often, but here I go again. Um, How sensitive does a poet have to be to, to see a beauty that so overtakes him, his sensitivity is so great that he's captivated by that beauty enough to speak about it, to do what poets do, and feel its loss. That's what poets do. They have, I mean, try to imagine living with a person like that, that kind of sensitivity. I don't think it would be easy because that person would see things, feel things that other people wouldn't. So poets have this extraordinary gift of sensitivity to see something, to feel so sensitive to that that they'll love the beauty of it and feel more when it passes. 
That's true of Dante, that's true of Shakespeare, it's true of Homer, Virgil, it's every, every great poet we've read. So, um, the, the part of the beauty of poetry is that it makes us aware of something that's there. We've always seen it, it's right in front of it, but we take it for granted, we don't give it a thought, and then suddenly you read a poem and that thing jumps out at us. I know you've all had that experience. Hibiscus has done that for us. You know that several weeks ago, a month or so ago, I sent you that still life. Um, the composer meditated that. Think about that. He went into a museum. He didn't know what was going to happen. He didn't go in with an agenda. He walked into a museum and saw that still life and contemplated it and found Mary in it. You know, I sent you that. And then he composed that, what I think is a stunningly beautiful piece of music, in which he gave Mary an audible sound. So if he could have pictured Mary in the still life, we're invited to feel her somehow through that sound. Yeah? We're so used to seeing things with our eyes that if we don't have them, we can't find an equivalent in our ears. But we know that's not so because beautiful music touches us all the time. Listen to Beethoven's Fifth or Ninth or, or Bach's cantatas or, you know. So in that piece, we're meant to feel something through an oral experience, through sound, that has to do with Mary. So we can actually experience her in sound. That's an amazing thing. And then, are you staying with me or do you feel like I'm losing it here? <laughs> um, and then um, our friends who are in Pennsylvania at this um, Theology of the Body conference sent us that Isa picture, that sculpture. I hope you all got it. Yes, you did. I just want to, I just want to do two things. Um, to just take a minute. Step back and look at it to see the whole thing because it's important to get both of their bodies. You know, they're there. Her full body. The sexuality. You know, the, I think they're conflating two Marys here. I may be mistaken because the, the quote was, go and sin no more. That was the woman in adultery. But they talk, they talk about it, the woman is, she's Mary. I, I'm, I'm not sure, but, but you can't miss. She's fully sexual, fully physically present. And you almost, the, the, the clothing and the sexuality of, of her being a woman is almost understated with the body of Christ leaning over her. Okay, you've all seen it. So, yeah. Um, I want to focus on the last one, but um, you know, even even something like this is important to see be, because we move away from the whole to see that dramatically something more is going on. When you get up close, you feel God. This is stunning. What, what to call it, the divine tenderness of God, the intimate tenderness of God physically holding this woman and supporting her partly with her hands and calling her to him and then looking intently in her eyes and the way her face leans forward as if his gaze has entered her and is pulling her close yeah I mean just look at the bodies yeah and then the last one um, you know you get even some sense of it here I don't I don't want to focus on this because in one sense, we're still not close enough. 
But then we go up with, and focus cut on the exchange, and we have this. Um, the only way that I know how to describe this, and my words will not be adequate, it's, it's, it's she is so vulnerably naked in her sins. So absolutely vulnerable to God. Um, she carries her sins with her, the burden of them is with her, or she wouldn't be as vulnerable, you know, tears are coming down her eyes. Um, longing to enter that life. So in the same moment, you've got her vulnerably naked in her sins, with God holding her in her sins and being freed in her contrition, in her sorrow. I mean, that's one of the most perfect expressions of grace I have ever seen in my life. It's, it's partly behind so much of the reading because you know that in the reading we're constantly taken to sins, to burdens. Achilles given up his life. We go wherever we want. So Shakespeare with Helena, you know. Um, I think one of the reasons I want to, I want to be really careful right now, I don't want to go there because it's been on my mind and it's, um, it has to do with some of the writing that I'm doing. Think about anybody living under the law without grace. It's what um, Christ is critical of, he's going to be critical of it, we're going to read it in our reading today. But think about the religions that live under the law, that they're defined by the law. They, they don't accept the divinity of Christ. We've talked about that. Imagine somebody living under the law and feeling they're righteous. And set that against this. Every Mass begins with an act of contrition. I'm sorry. Sorry. You know? Take away that act of contrition or the sorrow in our hearts, our hearts breaking, and what would our lives be like? We'd be under the law. And you, you, you certainly, you've heard it enough from me, I don't believe Christ is doing away with the law. Justice is the highest virtue in the natural order. He himself fulfills it. But he brings to that law an infinite divine love. He asks us to do the same, to work for justice. But to go to a cross in doing it. So to me it's one of the most perfect depictions. And one of the beautiful, it's interesting, one of the beautiful things that the um, Theology of the Body Conference was doing, they were doing everything in their power to get everybody there out of their heads, out of ideas, out of abstractions, into concrete experiences in the body. All of literature, I've been saying all along, takes us, returns us to the world to get out of our heads, abstractions, to return to the world um, where we meet Christ concretely. Um, because one of the dangers in our modern world, all the reading we did in the apologetics section, Leo the 13th, um, John Paul, Benedict. The modern world has lost its head. How can we recover our faith if we do not recover better minds? The modern world has lost its head. We need to recover a sense of the theology of the body, the concrete world. Everything they did in that conference was mediated through the arts. Music, painting, dance, literature, poetry. So, no. 
on, you know, I'm kidding. Come on, what? Um, if you haven't seen The Chosen. Yeah, um, mention it, yeah. The first episode, Oh. And it is so. I mean, I, I was falling. I mean, they, they, from a media film presentation of this, they really just, they nailed me down. Wow. Tell everybody, Heather, what's, because I don't know that everybody knows about this, and you just told us about it recently. It's a, so it's a show called The Chosen. Um, Um, and which you can hook up to your phone, you can put on your smart TV. Um, and it's about the, the show, season one, I'll start with season one. Season one is about the calling of Jesus' disciples. And it's so human um, and so very touching. And this, Mike, this scene, can you do something about the air conditioning again? I think everybody's getting cold again. So the chosen, just remember that and check it out. This is on Prime. Okay. I've got to spread these out. Season three, yeah. They usually have eight episodes in most things, but check it out. This is really interesting because it. it has to do so much with what we're doing. But any any other comments or question? Melody or David and Kay or Lori? I just say I agree with Hunter one hundred percent. Chosen is really worth your time. Wow. Okay. It's incredible. It shows the humanity. Wow. Wow, good. Good. I was we weren't even aware of it until you mentioned it last week, so. Okay. Um, okay, let's. Let's get to Matthew. I've got two background notes that I want to cover here before we turn to the text itself. One of them we've already touched on, and that is, um, what does it mean to live in a world that denies the divinity of Christ? You know, the Judaism and Islam 
both faiths tonight the divinity of Christ and you know that the secular world um, denies the divinity of Christ so really the only world of view the only organization whatever you want to call it um, that acknowledges the divinity of Christ and, and takes that as the lead for its life is Christianity and you know now if you didn't before that Christianity is broken down into various groups um, a large portion of one of them denies the logos in nature that's why Benedict did the Regensburg address if you deny the logos what's intelligible the workings of reason in nature that there's something rational present in nature then nature becomes um, a threat a danger a, a source of violence and one of Benedict's concerns was um, that um, he thought um, Islam and the fundamentalist Christian worlds were both at risk because they denied the logos and put them in that place two different stances but what they have in common is this denial of the logos okay um, one of the interesting differences between those two worlds as I've tried to set them out just now in a few minutes few minutes earlier is when you live under the law you, the tendency is to look at God as somebody whom you want to please by doing what you do to show how good you are you're righteous you live to the law right you're a good person the, the words I think somewhere I, I should have I've got to get them because they just flew by me I hadn't I'd heard them so many times that I wasn't I didn't think about them but given the work that we're doing suddenly they hit me and I didn't go back to them but the, there are words at the beginning of the mass that say Christ purchased the rewards of eternal life for us he did and hold on to that difference just for a moment okay if you're under the law you've got to do everything you can to be obedient to show how righteous you are in Christianity the position is almost the opposite Christ has done everything for us he purchased he gave up his life for us right he did not us and he asked us to follow him believing that he offers us a help nobody else can his graces so if he asks us to um, go, go to a cross to work for justice but bring a self-sacrificing love to what we do he's done it and we participate in the sacraments because we believe we receive a sacramental divine life from him so it's a little bit like taking so you can go to a doctor and a doctor can prescribe something and you can think about it in your head yeah you can think about it don't have all this knowledge about this medicine that's one thing it's another thing to actually take the medicine to receive it because it enters your body it's one thing to think about the Eucharist to think of it as a commemorative act it's another thing to receive it because in receiving it we believe our life is being changed day by day so even if we're prone to falling back as we are we sin we're constantly being offered a help it's not a one one-time thing it's it's an ongoing work with Christ so hold on to that that most people think they're given a reward of eternal life 
because they've been good. And our church, after, particularly after Vatican II, which I thought was a great thing to do, our church said we, it's important that we acknowledge that because somebody under, under the law can want holiness more than anything to be a holy person. But with Christ, things are different. Um, um, it's because he loves us that we can begin to do things we couldn't do on our own under a law. Okay. So that's the first, um, just a general thought. The other is, um, if, if you don't know already, um, and I'm assuming most of you have some notion about it, you know that um, biblical scholarship over the last two, three hundred years has radically changed the way people read the Bible. Remember, um, Benedict mentioned um, Harnack, um, whose reading of the Bible was along scientific lines, and he reached the conclusion that Christ was not divine. The Protestant world um, introduced a new element into reading the Bible because for both Luther and Calvin, the most important thing was a person's private relationship with God. That meant the reading of the Bible suddenly becomes subjective. What any individual would make it by his own private will, that's Hamlet, we went there. But anybody would make it. Um, and the problem with that is that one's private will may not connect with another. When Hamlet learned from his father that his brother killed him, and he said, avenge my death, and Hamlet killed him and said, I got it from a private revelation, who would believe him? A private re revelation in one way isolates it from the community of ties that we all share with each other in our earthly condition. So and a subjective element was introduced into our approaches to scripture and it's been there ever since. The scientific world has radically altered our approaches to scripture. And I want to give you some, just some examples. It's one of the pieces I um, put online. I, I, it, may, it may be there. It's, it's entitled something like Skeptical and Traditional Accounts. Um, if you don't have it, be sure to get it online just to take a look at it. Here are some of the things you can count on from the modern rationalist whose approaches are rest on science. Now we've done, we've done Chesterton together, all right? You know this. If you, if you start with the belief that only matter exists, then at the outset you've denied Christ or anything divine, anything transcendent. There's only matter, there's, nothing, there's no mind, there's no spirit. So for lots of modern materialists, miracles are not possible. We've read Chesterton, so you, you've seen, you've, you've gone through rational arguments answering that. Um, so here's a typical presentation of the Gospels. Um, like the rest of the New Testament, the four Gospels were written in Greek. The Gospel is Mark, probably dates from 66, 70. We usually date it around 70, which is the time Jerusalem was destroyed, the destruction of the temple. That's when the gospel writings are generally thought to have been written. Um, Matthew and Luke around 85, 90, um, John 90 to 110, we don't know. 
Despite the tradition, traditional ascriptions, all four are anonymous, and most scholars agree that none were written by eyewitnesses. Okay? The tradition is Matthew um, was an apostle, um, John was. Now here, and I want to, I want to, I'm, you're, right now you're probably not going to like me. Um, the Bible is the Word of God. There's not a question in my mind, okay? But we've got modern scholarship suddenly revealing things that weren't known before. And their conclusions encourage a kind of skepticism on the part of people responding. One of the responses of Christians is to outright just deny them. So you've got black and white at two opposite ends, incapable of getting finding a common ground. And, and the, the, the scientific ground is as groundless in some sense as the conservative right-wing biblical scholar. There's, there are things we just don't know, okay? And it's important just to acknowledge that. Um, but I want you to hear that. All four are anonymous and most scholars agree that none were written by eyewitnesses. Most scholars may be rational intellectuals bred on scientific theories, and that's the way they'll see it. Conservative traditionalists who are raised on traditions will give a greater value to the traditions, obviously. You'll get a statement like this, Mark never calls him God. Um, as if that implies something. Um, they denied that they were written by eyewitnesses, so they don't have the veracity of real experience that some of these things, the implications are some of these things were made up. Mark was the first to be written using a variety of sources. The authors of Matthew and Luke acting independently used Mark for their narrative, supplementing it with the collection of saints called the Q document. That's a, that's a, um, a verifiable document. It's got um, quotes and things that that suggests that the writers um, drew from it. The contradictions and discrepancies between the first three and John make it impossible to accept both tradition as equally reliable. People are going to come away from this saying, you can't rely on this, you can't trust it. So the whole effort, I hope you hear, is to undermine, to seriously raise questions. And if you start doing that, who is God? Where did he go? One of the things that's interesting about it comes up in Matthew, I'm almost sure. Um, um, I think we'll read it in my mind, God. Um, Christ gets upset at the disciples for not believing those who had an eyewitness experience of him. Remember when Mary was, came to the tomb and went and said, go tell? The description of Christ meeting them is he gets, he rebukes them, he gets angry at them for not believing those who are eyewitnesses to the experience. So even there, Christ is covering his tracks, he's saying, because what's going to happen after he dies? A hundred years later when there are no more eyewitnesses around, you're either going to believe this or not. It's a little bit like saying to a child, believe what your parents told you when you, you were 10 years old when, they're di when they died. You know, we, we have to take some things on trust. If we doubt everything, nothing's real. Chesterton covered that, the skepticism over time. 
So the, the reason for just bringing this out is um, to make you aware that that's a serious problem. I, I, I hope nobody's hearing me as undermining or calling, because I'm going to touch on that now, but it's something to take seriously because if you're going to talk with people about the Bible and you're, the people you're talking with come from those traditions, just know going into it. You, you, you've got to have your wits about you. I mean, you better really know what you're talking about or you're going to be walked over. And if that happens to you, what's going to happen to your kids with the current education? So, um, so, so many approaches to the Bible take the form of specializations that have broken down from the sciences from the beginning over the last 400 years. Historical, sociological, political, psychological. People reading the Bible read them from those perspectives because those are specializations within the sciences. So they will bring scientific assumptions from those perspectives. Scientific, I mean, psychological, sociological, political, Marx, Freud. Um, Bishop Barron, whom I greatly admire, in his the edition that he came out with a Bible with all the glosses on it, encourages people to read the Bible in terms of literary genres. That bothers me a little bit. You know how much I love literature. Can't be any doubts about it in this group. But I think you, we've got to be careful. The Bible is not a work of literature. It's the revealed word of God. We can use literary genres. We can use scientific information. But we should do it knowing all of these things can bring something to the Bible, but the Bible is the Word of God. St. Thomas says, learn to see what's there, what is. Read it for itself. When I'm reading literature, I'm trying not to do anything catechetical. I hope you see me doing that. I mean, I'm trying to be really scrupulous about when we read the Iliad, I want you to see the Iliad, and then I'll ask the question, is God here? Where is he, you know? Um, we can bring to our approaches to literature all the possible approaches, but it's the Word of God, and we have to learn to read it as that before we bring other things. Francis has encouraged us to read the Bible in terms of its beauty. He wants us to appreciate the beauty of it. That makes me a little bit nervous. It is a beautiful work. In my mind, it's more profound for its truth. There are beautiful sections of the Bible. I mean, the Song of Psalms, the, the Psalms, and are put to poetry. There's a real beauty. Um, the Bible is, is the Word of God. The Word of God is truthful. It's beautiful. It's one. It's not broken up. So it's important to hold on to those transcendental truths. Goodness, truth, beauty, oneness. Those are the great perspectives. Um, Cheryl, go ahead. Did you have something? Yeah. No, no, no. I want to. I tried to be careful. He. In his writing, he encouraged um, 
seeing the Bible in terms of literary genres. That was one of the ways he was encouraging. I just want to. Do you think that was because of the time he was in seminary? I just, I think people today are trying to get people back to read the Bible and they're appealing to contemporary mindsets. But that means it's only story set. Sorry? Yeah. Yeah, I, I want. I don't think. I don't think Bishop is saying look at it. Oh, I mean, that's why I try to be careful. I don't. I I admire so much what he's doing, and I think literary genres is a legitimate approach to take. I'm just trying to emphasize that all of those approaches are good. I'm saying be careful. Um, because there are lots of people in the world who read the Bible as literature. And that's not good. Wait, and hold on. That's understandable. The greater part of the Bible are stories. That's just a fact. All the four Gospels are narratives. That's a literary form. They're narratives of events that took place. That's, so there's a narrator, events taking place, they're described. That's a story. That's a novel. So in its, in, in its basic mode, it's literary. I'm just saying be careful because there are people who say, who, tr who present the Bible as um, literature, you know. So are you saying like, because there's people who present the Bible the same way they would present the Odyssey as being on equal, on equal? I'm just saying be careful because in the one, we have to never forget it's the Word of God and we have to read it that way. That, that that takes us outside of literature per se. Even if it's literary and it, and it's in its qualities, one of its, one of its characteristics. Here, let's go on because I want to get to Matthew. Um, the other, so the tendency today is to look at the Bible through all of these various specializations that are the, the a reflection of the, of the way in which science is, is broken into specializations. So, okay. One of them I want to particularly count on because there are so many of the scholars who work with scripture talk about the, the Pauline community or the Corinthian community or the, the Matthewan community or the Johannine community. You know, that John was writing to his community so that each gospel writer was writing to a different community. That is, what they're doing is, is practicing a form of what Chesterton and Benedict and John Paul correctly called historicism. That belief that all things are historically conditioned. If you want to understand it, you understand it in its historical, because outside of it, it has no meaning. There are lots of people who are historicists in the way they read the Bible. It's purely conditioned by its historical moment. There's a truth to that. Things grow out of the concrete conditions of their lives. But that's not the final word because there is something universal in every gospel that speaks beyond the particular needs of a community. I'm just trying to put out red flags here just to be aware that the, great, the greater part of scholarship in the Bible 
comes from the sciences and approaches the Bible through them. It's important to be aware of that, okay? Use them all, make a place for them, but don't ever forget, this is God speaking. You have to see it in its own terms, okay? Okay, one, one last thing. Last, last week, you know that we started with me reading the beginning because I, I asked the question, what was the ground of authority for each one of the Gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and I hope that was something of a revelation for everybody. What's the ground of authority? And remember, Matthew starts with the um, genealogy going back to Abraham, from Abraham to David to Christ, okay? But also the interesting thing about Matthew is that when he starts describing the life of Christ. Wait, two things. One is, he's giving the genealogy. So Matthew is locating Christ in his human nature. He's absolutely rooted in time. He goes back to um, Abraham. He goes back to David. He comes to himself. So one is, we know he's, he's rooted in his... Christ is absolutely human. He belongs to a long line of humans. Some of them were not nice. Killers, prostitutes, okay? He came from that line. So we know in that sense, he's the Messiah. He's the one that goes back to Abraham, to David, right? He's the fruit, the end for which that whole line has been preparing. So at the same time that Matthew's emphasizing his humanity, he's implicitly acknowledging his divinity. This is the Messiah, the long-awaited one. That's the beginning. And he underscores that because as he goes on, every event he describes is described in terms of a prophecy. I'll give one. First chapter, the end. Um, angel comes to Joseph. Do not fear, take Mary. Goes on. Um, she'll conceive a son by the Holy Spirit. His name will be Jesus. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. He, more than any of the other gospel writers, he roots Christ in time. His, he goes back in his genealogy. He actually describes his birth. He'll describe um, the scare by Herod, the escape to Egypt. He, he could none of them are as accurate in giving those details in the early part of his life. And every event that takes place is rooted in a prophecy. Okay? So, um, which was the one that you were looking at? Oh, that was after the, yeah, after the, I'm going to wait on. When we looked at um, Mark, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it's written in Isaiah, the prophet, behold, I send my messenger. It goes to John, who's going to prepare the way. So Mark begins by, by rooting the authority of Christ's incarnation in a prophet, a long line of prophets, and the one who will bring the prophetic tradition to its end in John the Baptist. Okay? So... Um, the emphasis here is on, again, prof more than Matthew, um, prophetic authority. Luke, remember, 
I like Paul's description of him, the fact checker. Where's Paul? Inasmuch as many have undertaken to complete a narrative of the things which have been accomplished among us just as they were delivered to us by those from the beginning, were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an ordinary account for you, Theophilus, that you may know the truth concerning the things of which you've been informed. He got them from eyewitnesses' accounts, but he's so... It rests on actual eyewitness experiences. He's not making things up. What he's doing is straightening things out because he knows everybody's writing about Christ. There are um, volumes being written about him. And he knows the danger and he's saying, this is the truth. This comes from eyewitnesses. That gives his work an authority. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, Mary. Writing it to Theophilus right. because of your excellency. So that would mean he's a bishop. To me, that's how you address a bishop. <laughs> yeah. And evidently, he must have been a convert because he said the instruction that he received. So maybe there was some question. And so Luke had to give the facts, like you said, yeah. eyewitnesses, yeah. because maybe Theophilus was questioning. I don't know, Mary. You may be right. It's a good. It's a good question. Um, I don't know because I. I don't know enough about it. My sense is I've always, my sense I've always had, but rightly or wrongly, because I've not explored it, is that Theoph Theophilus was a believer in somebody in whom he was entrusting something that Theophilus would take to others. That um, the one in John quickly. Um, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without So, with John, we are, <laughs> we are taken... Here, this is so important, because I raised this question, and I, I, I want to underscore it again tonight. Part of what's been going on is every one of these Gospel writers has to justify what he's doing. He's locating all this does is reinforce our belief in the incarnation it was real we can't blow it off we've got all these facts its historicity cannot be doubted it cannot they've got all these so the modern the, i can I mean i can't the modern people who disbelieve it it's like saying an accident didn't take place on a corner when it did these things their, their historicity the fact that they happened can't be doubted they happened the interesting, so every one of them can be backed up. We're not in some religious fanatic's head. It can't be blown off. This is about God. And a, a God who did, who absolutely changed the world because he took on our human nature, which most moderns won't believe in anyway. But we've got all these facts. John is the one who said, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was God. Through him all things are made. He's not on the earth. These things cannot be verified according to a modern empiricist. He's in heaven. He's describing things in eternity in, where there could not have been eyewitness accounts. Is everybody clear? That's his beginning. And my question, I'm not going to answer it now because we're going to get to John. Who does he think he is? By what right can he say these things? This guy. Okay? So those are the grounds. 
we've got four different authorities filling out the basis of our faith. Okay, and uh, you you've seen this now. You um, I gave I, you all got that that handout with the picture, right? Uh, I've lost it. It's the it's the picture of the the gospel writers. Here, the four evangelists and their symbols. You all got this? Just I'm I'm not gonna spend any time on it, but just so you have it. Interestingly, follow this, because I went on I don't I just you know, I, I'm not a biblical scholar, but I you know I'd, I'd look up some things to to try to be a little bit better informed. Matthew is called, so traditionally, each of the four evangelist gospel writers was associated with a different image, a different symbol. Matthew was called a divine man. Or you could call him a winged man. I, I think either is appropriate. Appropriately, because he, he's been he's singled out for his humanness. Because the focus of his gospel is Christ, humanity, and all these divine things that are going on. So Matthew's likened to a man. Mark is likened to a winged, a winged lion because of his nobility. He took on all these high, noble things. Luke is likened to a winged ox. I'm a little bit unclear in that. I mean, the, the typical description is that Oxes were typically sacrificed, and there are a number of important sacrifices that Luke focuses on. Focuses on. He gave up his profession. He sacrificed his profession as a doctor to write. John is a rising eagle. So appropriate. He's of he's of the air. He's speaking of um, transcendent divine realities. Um, he's like the first explicit theologian. Um, so those are just some important things to hold on to when you think about um, the Gospels, okay? I want to go, go to Matthew because I want to... Um, if we look at the... If we, look, if we just take the Gospel of Matthew by itself, there are a number of different ways in which scholars have approached it. There are lots of scholars who approach it um, by means of the parables, the, the talks, the speeches. There are five major talks that people focus on. I think it's, it's, it's more faithful to the structure of Matthew to look at it as divided down into these three parts. This is Matthew. Christ enters the world through his humanity. That's the opening. He goes on and he progresses, goes into his ministries, takes them on, and he prepares for and he undergoes his departure, his getting ready to leave the world. That's the beginning, the middle, and the end. And it's a story. It's, it's, you can say it's a narrative. That's the story of what happened. He's coming into the world, he's taking on his ministries, and he's leaving it. If you look at the notes that I prepared, just one thing before I quickly um, gloss over the, the first eight chapters. 
You all have my outline notes, do you? It's on the second page. Just um, in one of the pages, I, I, or sections, the, the text that I gave you, I think it's the one with the pictures in front. Don't do it now, but if you look at the back page, I've listed all the miracles, that are, the prophecies that are listed in Matthew. I think, I think it's in the four evangelists. Nope, it's... In one of the sheets that I gave you, I've listed all of the... Oh, it's here. The four gospel dates and reliability. On that sheet, if you go to the very last page, you'll see all the prophecies in Matthew. Here. Here it is. Look at all the prophecies. That's how rooted Matthew is in prophecy. Okay? Um, I'm going to just quickly run through the chapters, first eight chapters, so that everybody can hold them in mind, and then I want to focus on a couple of things. Jesus is born in Bethlehem, Herod hears of him, and wants to kill him. He's a threat to his power. So already the theme of um, the contest between the state and church is made explicit. Herod feels a threat and wants to get rid of him. They have to flee. Chapter 2, Joseph and Mary flee to Egypt to escape Herod. Um, um, the wise men lie and they get away. Um, John the Baptist in chapter 3 calls the Jews to repent. Kingdom of heaven is at hand. He knows something is happening. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Stop and think. If we, God, it's just sort of me. We live in a world, we, the basic paradigm of the modern world is knowledge equals power. The more you know about something, the more power you have over it. The interesting thing about the prophets is that they're all describing things that are going to be real, um, but they're things nobody else knows. John knows the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You baptize Christ. After the baptism, Christ is taken in the desert. That's where I want to focus here. Um, um, chapter 5, um, he goes to the top of a mountain and begins to teach. He, he, um, he gives the Beatitudes, and then he has that long list of making distinctions between what he's asking of people and the law. Hold on now, because I want to take a second with that, okay? You all know the Beatitudes, so I'm not going to go through them. Um, blessed are the poor, blessed are the me, blessed are those who mourn. Um, when he says, blessed are the poor for they shall inherit, he's not talking about poverty. He's not talking about poverty. He's talking about poverty of spirit. Those who are without God are blessed because they long for him. Lots of people who are rich don't give a thought about God. But if you know you're lacking in God, and that's what you want, then you're blessed. Yours is the kingdom. You want him more than anything, and you lack him. You don't have him. Um, just after the Beatitudes, he goes through that, you've heard it said, don't kill. I'm saying to you, if you have murder in your heart, you've already done it. You've heard it said, adultery is a crime. I'm telling you, if you've ever thought about it, you're already in adultery. So what Christ does in that long 
section where he's teaching the crowd and the people, what he's doing is making clear the greater importance of the interior life to the outward. He's answering every fault of the law. That's true for Catholics who live by the law, which is a danger, I think, for all of us. He's saying the most important thing is inward, interiorly. Who can see that? We make judgments on people all the time based on outward appearances. He's saying the most important thing was our interior, our inward life, because that's where the Spirit does his work. Yes, in the law, we're doing it. I'm doing this. Look, look at me, how good I am. Watch me, how righteous I am. How many of us can penetrate the interior of people in our judgments? One of, the, one of the reasons I love literature is because so much of our literature takes us into the interior of people. We learn to see differently. Um, so in his opening teaching, he goes to the Beatitudes. Um, and what he's doing there is this. It's of fundamental importance. Every Beatitude is directed to people being marginalized. The poor, the weak, the humble hungry, you know, the more, those who mourn. They're everybody who doesn't have something. Um, he's come into a Jewish world um, which makes the law greater than anything. He's gonna, we're going to confront this head-on in Matthew. And, um, and Jerusalem is uh, under occupied powers, the Roman forces. So um, everybody's surrounded by people who've made it. It's like walking into New York or Dallas. Everybody's got a home, everybody's got money, everybody's set. Christ comes in and says, should I read them? Here, they're too good. I want to just briefly recall this if you can. Turn to Matthew for a second. This is in um, Matthew what is it, 4, 5. He's on the crown of a hill talking to the people and he says, imagine this, and he opened his mouth and taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit, it's people without God who want him. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall cease God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for their blessed are you when men revive. Every one of those things is directed at people who've got their mind on God because he's more important than anything else going on in the world. To bring mercy, um, who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Um, and then he goes on to that thinking where he makes the distinctions between the law and the working of the Spirit. Okay. Um, Chapter 6, Christ continues his teaching. He teaches the Lord's Prayer. He asks us to trust God, to not be anxious about the world, to put our anxieties away. And 7, judge not, 
repent, mind your business. He says, don't give away pearls to swine. Um, he's saying, don't be nice. Don't, what, we're, what we do should not be for the approval of other people. Um, by the law, it's the law working. Repent, pay attention to the interior life that I've just talked about. That's where our focus should be. Okay, that's just a quick run through of the first eight chapters. Um, things will get deeper as, because we'll more and more focus on Matthew in the next two weeks when we look more closely. I want to go to two things in chapter four where Christ undergoes the temptations. So if you could go there. We've been hearing these forever. It's a serious question for me how much we pay attention to them. Uh, we're sorry. Um, this is in 4, very beginning of 4. Jesus was led up to the, um, by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The Spirit took him there. And he fasted 40 days, 40 nights, and afterwards he was hungry, and the tempter came and said, if you're the son of... I'm going to just do this very quickly because I want to I get to you guys. I want to ask this question. Why? He had to go through this temptation before he could, be, before he could begin his ministries. What's he doing What's he teaching us here about what he's about to face? He's God. He has to know at this point, the devil's going to tempt him. He has to know. The devil comes to him and tempts him. Why does he have to go through this before he can begin his ministries? What do we learn from those temptations, okay? Um, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said, If you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, He will give, you angel, he will give his angels charge of you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the sun. Wait, by the way, do you think the devil doesn't know scripture? <laughs> I mean, just be careful. You know, we think we're so smart. I'm saying this really seriously. However smart we are, everybody's got to understand, the devil is infinitely smarter than we are. He, he was the first of the angels, the brightest, the light. That means his in, angels have no bodies. They're all, they're all in us. They're, perf, they're pure form. He's quoting scripture to Christ. Um, Throw yourself off. If you're God, he will give, the angels will rescue. Their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. <laughs> this is almost comic. Um, Jesus said to him, again it's written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again the devil took him to a mountain, showed him all the kings, and he said, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, begone Satan, for it's written, <laughs> There's only one person or three persons more than the devil who would know scripture better. It's the Father and the Spirit and the Son. Um, Jesus says, um, 
For it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. The devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Ministered. That had to be something of an ordeal. He's, he's human. What I mean if he's God? He fasted for 40 days. Okay, this is serious. Let's go through the four temptations. Why that four temptations? What do we learn um, about Christ? What's, what's the temptation? He's, a, he's God and man at the same time. Yeah? What's the temptation and what's he teaching us about him and ourselves? He's hungry. If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by um, every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What do we learn from that first temptation? Not to give in to the, the pleasures of the flesh. That's what it is. I mean, he's tempting him to satisfy that very physical desire for food. And also he's questioning him, his divinity. If you are the son of God, show me what you can do. And if you don't show me, then you're not. <laughs> what else? Thought somebody, did somebody have something over here? Those are all human oils. Oh, go ahead, Anne. They're all things that we try to make important. Yeah. That are not as important. They're not, food's not important? Well, it's a necessity. The angels had to minister right. Christ's way. <laughs> no, but I'm, I'm saying it's all things of this world. Right. Yeah. Anybody else? What's the risk? Let's say if. Christ gave in to that. What would the implications of that be? Some of them. That we could be bribed. Huh? That we could be bribed. That we can be bribed. Yeah. What do we lose? That you are human because you're the temptations are to the human nature of Christ, so you're maybe more human than divine because you mm -hmm. we have to call it the supernatural. Mary, follow that up. Go ahead. What's, explain that. Um, there's grace there. We just have to call on it and use it. Um, well, if we, if we did that, if, if we or he had the power to turn stone into breads, would we ever need God again? Or any miracles? If we had all of our, all of our physical necessities answered, would there be ever a need to turn to God? Okay, but hold off on those. You, I mean, there's two others coming, but um, it seems to me one of the things that's going on here is that that if 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 we could reach a position of having all of our physical needs taken care of, our earthly needs, then why would we turn to God at all anyway? Um, so to do that um, would put us at a position of being physically, worldly comfortable. Our, our, necessities answered and if they were what does that do to miracles or God well it would also make us little gods because we get to snap our fingers and like make water appear make this turn into yeah bread, yep make this appear like if we could do that then we would be gods of our own thing okay let, I'm, I, I, I'm gonna stop it here because I'm afraid of where this will go if I imagine if a state 
presented itself as being ans capable of answering all our needs. A state, what would that do for the power of the, or the place of the church in the world? If a state ever, and I, I don't, I don't open this up, so everybody hold on here. But if a state ever, if a state, if a state, here, listen, if a state ever claimed totalitarian powers, socialist, communist, if a state claimed those powers, and it led everybody to believe that they could answer all their worldly needs, all their bread, what would the effect of that be on them with respect to any transcendent activity in the world? Okay. Huh? I know. Here, let's do the second, because I'm going to get on time tonight. Bob's sitting... He's sitting right in front of me, if you understand the... But he's got a blanket. Oh, wait, I, I brought... Is he, I've, here, Doc, give... Has, has, I've got two sweats that I brought. Is anybody... I've got two sweats. Are you guys... Here, Doc, give her, just give her one. Ignore her. Would you just give her one, please? Ignore her and give her one? Yes. Ignore what she says. Bob, I'm sorry. I tried to turn it off, but I can't. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. The second temptation. Um, he took him up to the holy city. The holy city set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down for it's written, he will give his angels charge of you on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your... F Je Jesus said, again it's written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. What's at issue in that temptation? In a sense he's almost preparing us to live better lives. He's, he's laying out the, the basic things that we're going to be facing in our own lives. He had to face them. He's really showing us what he had to face and what all of us have to face every day. So what's at issue in this second temptation? Throw yourself down because it said um, he will give his angels charge on their hands. They will bear you up lest you strike your foot again. So once again, the devil's using scripture to tempt God. It's two things. It's uh, what I see is uh, disregard for the gift of life that he's throwing himself on, as if to commit suicide, and then tempting God to uh, save him. Give a name for that. <coughs> Presumption. Yeah. Sorry. Yes. Is there anybody add anything? Let me. Yeah. You're always supposed to trust God, but He's not God. Yeah. It, here's this um, presumption. I think is the is the center of it. How many times do we do something in our lives presuming that God will save us? We've got our sins. We can go to confession. How much easier is it for, to continue in our sins because we're presuming on him that he will bail us out? Father James, I mean, he tags that on. He calls it cheap grace. I mean, I, I know he, I don't know what he does. I'm assuming he's doing it here, but because I, you know, he talks about because it's a presumption. It's that we believe that 
even if we, we know that we're doing something is wrong and, and we do it knowing it, and if we do it in the presumption that Christ is going to do it because we've got confession and we can do these things, are we presuming on God? And, I, and by the way, I'm, I, I hope I kind of just, I want to be really careful here. Christ knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows sin. So he knows that even if we go to confession, I mean, why do we have the sacraments all the time? The, the Protestants don't because they believe it was a one-time thing and it's done. Grace is imputed, it's over. There's no communion in, in the, the, the Calvinist wing of the fundamentalist church. It's over. Um, it's done act. Um, we go often, um, <laughs> speaking for myself, certainly for myself, because I believe, we believe, we need it. We, we slip back. It's, it's so easy for us to commit our sins, to keep going back as a way of picking ourselves up again. And, you know, because the danger, we face, the danger we face is presuming on God. He's God. He can save us. He can rescue us. So, first temptation is um, is is having a power to answer necessities in such a way that we don't depend on God anymore. We just deny that. If we if we can answer all our necessities, why why turn to Him? The second is the presumption that God will rescue us. Throw yourself off; the angels will get you. How many people, think about enabling in our culture, not just in families, in our culture as a, as a culture. It, when I look at our culture, it's, it's impossible for me to look at it without thinking of Troy. It's going to be destroyed. We are an enabling people everywhere, everywhere. If things go bad, we rob a bank. We'll make it okay. And people will feel sorry for us because we were facing a difficult situation. So when everything, anything goes bad and we do something bad to answer it, we will be understood. You know, people will understand. Um, he, he's saying be careful of approaching things, presuming that we'll be rescued, that God will save us. So we're asked to take on these battles. Christ is taking them on right here. He's showing us what we're going to be facing. Um, he, he knows <laughs> that we're going to sin, but he's also called us to holiness. He's called us to come out. That's our battle. The third temptation. Takes him up on a high mountain and says, Here, he showed him all the kingdoms of the world. All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it's written, You shall worship the Lord your God and Him only shall you serve. What's the third temptation? Hmm? Power. Go ahead, Mary. Can you flesh it out? I'm going to buy. I'm going to. I know what I'm going to get you for Christmas. No, <laughs> no, no. no. <laughs> These are three and a half pound glasses. So I can see really good. Anybody else? Bob, did you have something? Um, basically, I think he's saying is the world 
Don't let the world become more important than God. God. And the things of the world are not that important. Particularly if, if they lead... Go ahead. I was going to say, it's related to the first commandment. You know, don't have any other gods than me, but you're having the gods of richness and power. Right, right, right. Yep. That in, should, go ahead. You should only worship God, not, not transfer that worship to Satan. Yeah. The interesting because and and think about the way the world sees itself in terms of power. That if you have power, you can do all these things. So all those things in the world that you associate with power, because ultimately we've gone through this before with Boethius and Saint Thomas. What are the four natural goods that most people want more than anything? We saw it in Lear. We've seen it in every work we've read. What are the four? Power, wealth. Fame. Pleasure. It is lust. It, it is, you can, lust is fine, Connie. Because if, if we think any of those things give us power, whatever it is, power, money gives us power to do things, um, fame, our reputation will give us power over people, pleasure, I think, gives us some sense of having our pleasure, power over something. Every one of those things is illusory because every one of them can be lost. That was Boethus's great argument. If you, if you attach too much importance to those things because of whatever illusions they give you, you're going to live in an illusory... John Paul and Benedict's great statement. These are all forms of enslavement in the modern world. These are all the philosophies that people call us to, that we can have all these things, or this is the way the world is. And the world is not that way. So, yeah, Heather, go. So, could you, could you say that the way that Satan presents these three temptations is in a, I guess you say, a descending order of sin? So we're going from the least serious meeting those superficial desires right. the yeah. love, love, love. Down, all the way down to the, the power and wealth, worshiping, breaking the first commandment, worshiping something other than God, worshiping the world. So it's like the, the sins are getting more, or the temptations are getting more serious. So the last one is the hardest. More to the center, the central one. No yeah. And the more, the more yeah. The, the first one would have been the easiest. Eat some bread. Well, I think as human beings, I don't think it is because we're corporeal. I mean, we our physical needs are a real part of us. The danger is if we if we put our trust in the world. And but yeah, I think I mean that's a good way to put it. Would you all agree that you're that um, I, the only thing I'm concerned about is yeah, but it's right to do it a descending order. You could invert it and say ascending. That this is the pinnacle, but. But it's good because it goes down, it's like Dante's hell. Um, and it's, it's interesting that they're absolutely interconnected. They're all ascent, they, they, go, they, go, they, they go directly to our human nature, who we are as human, we need things. In our necessity, we're inclined to do things, to, to, to tempt or presume. And in our human nature, we're inclined to put other things above God. So every one of them speaks to our human nature and it's as if he's given us the categories for us 
to learn to deal what he had to face to save us and what we have to face following him. And it's almost as if he gives like, he's showing the descent into sin. So it starts off with making concessions to our human, very basic human needs. And then before you know it, then you're presuming God's mercy. And then you are falling even farther. And then you're taking the place of God. Yes. Yeah. Okay, yes, is everybody? So um, here at the outset of Matthew, Matthew has gone through the genealogy, he's focused on Christ's humanity, but every, every, almost every scene he focuses on to show some aspect of Christ growing, a child, a boy, adulthood, um, it's connected to a prophecy. So Matthew is called the winged man the winged man, the divine man, that he's, um, his focus is on Christ's humanity um, and the divinity in it. It's a wonderful, it's a wonderful gospel. Let me, let me, um, we're getting out early. Just, um, the ministry starts now, okay? The ministry starts. He's faced his temptations. In one sense, it's, it's just sort of amazing. Matthew has revealed to us, Christ through Christ, the temptations that we face. I can't think of a temptation outside of those three. They're all there. They cover our human nature. Everything is there. So, um, and we see God face them for us. And, and he did it at the end of a 40-day fast. Um, so he was reduced to crippling things. So when we fast, in a sense, we're being asked to give up the world, to, to learn, to put these illusions away and be free, to receive the freedom that Christ offers. Okay. I want to just take a minute with the next because what follows this, because it's going to point to what's going to happen with Christ in the next eight chapters that we'll, we'll take up next week. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and dwelt in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. So he's going in now, how much he's conscious of, or that he does this, or but the prophecy will be fulfilled by what happens. Um, that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of, of Naphtali, toward the sea, across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and for those who sat in the region of shadow of death, Light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is in. He's saying exactly what John did. When he begins his ministry, he says, Repent. That's the beginning of his ministry. But how we'd understand, in terms of the geographic location, and in terms of time, because the prophecy takes us back to Isaiah, 
How are we to understand what's happening here? Here, I'll read it again. He withdrew, went and dwelt in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali towards the sea across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and for those who sat in the region of shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time forward, Jesus says, repent. Who are the people in darkness, and who are the people in shadow, and what's happening right now in this moment? The Gentiles in the darkness. Phil, explain. Can you, Bob? Where, who's... who's the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and those who sat in the region of shadow of death, light has dawned. Well, the darkness is a symbol for the world, and certainly the Gentiles weren't included in the Jewish faith. It, sorry? They weren't included in the Jewish faith, so they were right. totally in the darkness. Anybody else? Wait, let me let me offer this to because this very soon we're going to see Christ commission his disciples. His first commissioning here will be go to the house of Israel. He came for the house of Israel. That's he says that he came for the house of these are his father's chosen people. He he came in obedience to his father's call. He came for the house of Israel. His first commissioning of the disciples is, go to the house of the Israel, do not go outside that house. And then suddenly things start happening. But here, before his mission starts, um, Matthew presents it as, he's going there so that Isaiah's prophecy might be fulfilled. Go to the land of... Um, um, Naphtali, um, Galilee, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and those who sat in the region of shadows of death seen that um, light has dawned. Who are those two groups? Mary, did you have something? Well, those were two of the tribes of Israel, Zebulun and Naphtali, and they were in the northern kingdom, and remember they were separated from Judah. So, Jesus is Maybe looking for restoration of the kingdoms. He's in the north, northern kingdom. That's what I said. <laughs> he had to get away from Jerusalem. You know, he had to be away from there to do his ministry. Right now, yeah, because John's been, I mean, he's being careful right now. Anybody else? So this, I was taking this wrong. This, you going, may be right. No, you, I, I, uh, if this is uh, an ancestral homeland of some of the northern tribes, then I was thinking in terms of the, the land by the sea, which was traditionally the, the, the old land of the Phoenicians. And they were particularly fond of uh, human sacrifice or child sacrifice. And like the Canaanites. 
That's why David, when I read, you know, it was shattered, a land overshadowed by death. I was thinking of that. But I, don't, I don't think I'm on the right track now. <laughs> Anybody, Doc? How do you read this? Well, I'm, just, uh, I'm just reminded that Christ said he was here for the house of Israel, but then he widens his ministry. Can you speak up? He spreads out his mm -hmm. He's so taken by um, the faith of the, the faith yeah. of um, the mother who wants her daughter. Lots of them. Devil. Yeah. Apply this to these two groups. What's what? How do you understand the two groups? To, I, don't, I don't apply them to the two. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great. So I Christ is. They're the Gentiles. Who's talking about? So he says. Sorry? They probably fell away from the faith, from the Jewish faith, because they were in the north, so they're near Samaria, and the Assyrians and all of that, so they're probably intermarrying. They've got into pagan worship. That's what I'm thinking, because they are in the north, and so this was a land of darkness. Maybe they didn't think they would. He calls it. calls it the Galilee. Well, yeah. overshadowed by death, I guess I'm thinking of it not so much the physical location, but we know that Christ came uh, to open heaven for us. Mm -hmm. Mary, uh, and sorry. So how do you how do you understand identify those two groups? Can you put a name to them? Can you name them? In terms of uh, land overshadowed by death, I just think of the human race who up until they, they had been promised that they, a savior was going to come and all, you're saying like all redeem the humanity them. Yeah. shadowed by death because the gates of heaven are closed yeah that's what I was thinking he, call, he calls it the, um, the Galilee of the Gentiles it's the Gentiles not the Jewish people yeah I mean it's just I'm going to have to look at this let me give you my thought and then we're going to have to stop here but it's, I mean, really, I have to, and, and I have to give this some thought in light of everything you guys are saying, because I, I don't have, you know, glosses and things on this. And when I heard that, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. For those who sat in the region in shadow of death, light has done. My my first thought about that was that the people who sat in darkness are the Jews, who seen a great light. They've been waiting for it. He came for them. And those who sat in the region in shadow of death, that is everybody outside the chosen people, um, were faced with death. The chosen people were promised salvation. They weren't facing death. That's, I think that's why my question is whether that is what he means. People who sat in, that is, he's come for the house of Israel. They turned from God. These are his children. They were offered salvation. They've turned from him. They're in a darkness. And for those who sat in the region of the shadow of death, that is all those outside because they weren't facing salvation, they will now. I mean, what's going to happen in this gospel is Christ is going to change. It's going to be a very, very serious moment. It's going to be a dark moment. Um, and anyway, I wondered. I mean, that because we know that he came for the Jews, 
and the Gentiles weren't in the picture there. But what's interesting in Matthew is repeatedly Christ is going to meet these people outside the Jewish faith, the Samaritan woman, the Roman centurion, and others. And he'll say <laughs> he's not seeing such a faith in his own people. And he turns. He says to the Jews in rage isn't the right word, but a, a divine anger. You've refused. Now it goes, now salvation is being... I don't know, but it's hard for me to hear that without wondering if those two people, I'm not sure. Let's stop, okay? Unless anybody else has got any thoughts on this last passage. Christ underwent his temptations. He is, he is, he has faced everything that man will face in his life. He faced it as a man and God and shown us what we face with his help. And now his ministry is going to start. He's going to start teaching his disciples and he's going to start healing and doing what he does, okay? Next week we'll, we'll take the next eight chapters and then we'll take one more week after that and then we, then we will start John. We're moving along. Wait, sorry, Lori, Melody, David, any, any questions, any comments you guys have? Sorry. Do you guys have something? study like 10 years ago and I had the book and one of the things um, on the temptation of Jesus that I answered one of the questions um, and the question was Jesus is tempted by the devil what seems to be the motivation and purpose behind the devil's question and the answer was to deflect Jesus from the obedience of the father and, and that to me kind of everything that were all the questions were you know, why did the devil this, that, and the other, you know, and it was to deflect Jesus, and it was to teach us that we too can be deflected from the obedience of the Father. Yeah. And I just learned it from that there. <laughs> yeah, it's also, I think it's also really important to know what's at stake, what's at issue when we're struggling with trying to be obedient. Part of the value of going through those temptations is we see very specific kinds of temptations that we're facing. You know, and, and it doesn't help to be obedient when we're not sure of what we're being obedient to. I think part of the value of those three temptations is he's really making clear to us what he's facing on our behalf and what we, what we face daily in trying to live with him. Melody, did you have something? I think that's great, what Lori just said, and also um, the last temptation where the devil said you can be in charge of all these kingdoms. I mean, the non-pessimistic view is that if Jesus were in charge, he could do a lot of great things. But the problem would be, when you remove yourself from God, you remove yourself from goodness. So even though you think you can do all of this stuff, not possible without God, and I think a lot of politicians probably need to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> you have great ideas, you can't remove yourself from God. Yeah, it's just, it, it, I remember earlier I didn't want to, I didn't want to open that too easily, but 
Um, but think about how, how many policies today reflect a belief that if, if people would only follow along and give the support to the idea of the state being sort of omnipotent, taking care of everything, that all of our problems would go away. And the people who are re resistant to that are part of the problem. <laughs> so, so Christians typically aren't liked very well today for that reason, but, um, but yes, yes, for sure to both of your comments. Okay, you guys have a good week. Um, we'll, we'll continue with Matthew for two more weeks. And, and then we do John, which I think is going to be a huge... But follow Christ closely. I mean, what's he doing? Um, particularly with his teaching. Oh, here. When the disciples came to him and said, Explain to me, explain to us why you're doing what you're doing. And he, he, he says, he, he seems to say because I don't want some people to enter the kingdom. I, that's not his, but we're gonna to come to a point where his answer to the disciples leaves us wondering what he's doing and whether how much they understand when he's trying to teach them, because he's giving everybody parables, but they pull him aside and say, teach us the meaning of these parables, and he starts teaching. But he also puts in a caveat there that, that I think turns a lot of people on their heads, so. Pay close attention. Don't take anything for granted. Don't, do not overlook the obvious. Pay attention to everything. Everything means, okay? See you guys next week. Have a good week and be safe. Okay. Thank you.